All right, New Life Church, how are you this morning? Again, we need more from you. You good this morning? Let me hear you. Okay, great. It's good to see your faces this morning. If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East. And uh, well, we got some Easter's in the house this morning. All right, good to see you all uh, this morning. Hope you all had a great summer. I am grieving the end of summer, aren't you? Oh my gosh, I love the sunny, warm days and time by the pool and vacations. Summer vacations are also wonderful. Did any of you get out at all, take some summer break time? Raise your hand if you took a little break this summer, went on vacation somewhere, anywhere. It's so wonderful. I love summer. And so now here we are staring down the fall and we're getting ready to kind of reestablish some of our life rhythms, family rhythms, and work rhythms, getting back into kind of the flow of life, that 24-7, 365 existence. And so I thought this would be a good time to just talk about, for a few minutes this morning, about developing a theology of work. Everybody say theology of work. Now, you've maybe never heard any preacher talk about that before. Theology of work, what is that? Like we got theology of God and the theology of his son Jesus, theology of the Holy Spirit, theology of church, but a theology of work, is there such a thing? But there is actually, the scripture has a great deal to say about our work, the sacred value of it. Unfortunately, in the church, we don't often spend a lot of time talking, thinking, reflecting upon the meaning or the significance of our work in the plan of God. One of the great authors of the 20th century, the essayist Dorothy Sayers, who's good friends with C.S. Lewis, she wrote this, she said that in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of a person's life? You think about how much of your waking hours you spend at work. The question is, does God have anything to say about that? And does that have any importance, any significance for the plan of God as it unfolds through history? As it turns out, it does, which is why the Apostle Paul at the end of his uh, beautiful little epistle, the book of Colossians, this wonderful, magnificent epistle, where he talks about the great plan of God to reconcile all things in Christ. At the end of Colossians, he starts talking through some things that we should do because of this great cosmic thing that's happened in Jesus. And Paul writes this, he says, whatever you do, work at it with, what does the text say? Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Verse 24, since you know that you'll receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So given the fact that all things have been and are being reconciled and redeemed in Jesus Christ the Lord, Paul says, what are you going to do about it? where you're gonna to go to your job and you're gonna work at it with all what? Your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. And so I wanna spend some time this morning just kind of setting out a couple ideas on a theology of work that'll help us, I think, locate what we do with our time and with the work of our hands inside the great plan of God. So Lord, here we are in your presence and we thank you that you're the God who still speaks to us. So come, we pray. Come, you're not Lord over a sliver of our lives. You're not just Lord over the time that we spend here in church lifting up our praises to you and interacting with other members of the body of Christ, but you're Lord over all things. You're Lord over all that we do, all that we put our hands to do. And so I'm praying that you would open our eyes. This is what the psalmist said. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. 
And so we pray that you'd open our eyes this morning, that you'd help us hear the scriptures, and you'd help us understand how our lives fit in the great plan of God. Grant it, we're praying. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Let me make some theological statements, and uh, we'll test these against what the scripture has to say. So number one, first thing I wanna say to you, about the significance of your work this morning is that number one, uh, work is not a result of the fall. Now I know what you're thinking and I know why you're giggling at me because you're saying, but you haven't met my boss. But you don't know what I do for a living. Like I'm quite certain, like just join me on a Monday morning, aren't. And I'm quite certain that you'll be convinced that work is a result of the fall. Well, the truth is that in the biblical witness, it's not a result of the fall. Now, about your boss and some of the unsavory work conditions that you may be dealing with, the scripture does have a lot to say. We'll get to that in a little bit. But work is not a result of the fall. But the work of human hands is actually written into our created existence from the very start. Think about what Genesis says, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may... Rule, the human beings are supposed to do something over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, verse 27, the livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground, verse 27. So God created mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, verse 28b, and then rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves. So the human beings are not created to just kind of sit around in this sort of contemplative existence of created perfection. But right from the get-go, God wants them busy. God wants them doing things. And we see this just one chapter later, Genesis 2 and verse 15, where the scripture says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and to take care of it. The Hebrew words there are very interesting. It's abad and shamar. Everybody say abad and shamar. Abad and Shamar. Abad, work it, means that what we do is we draw the latent potential out of a thing. So here is this open garden of Eden and what are the human beings sent to do? But they're sent to go into it and help that garden, that place that God has given them, help it rise up to the fullness of its potential. And Shamar is a word that means protection. So they're to protect it from malign influences and also help the garden become all that it's intended to be. God designs us to work. And actually in this way, it's not just that God kind of wanted us to, you know, just kind of stay busy out there. You gotta have something, you know, an idle mind is the devil's playground or whatever. It's not that, but we actually image God when we work and we fulfill our own vocation as image bearers of God when we work. Think about what Genesis says earlier. Again, Genesis chapter one, our God starts revealing himself right from the very beginning as the consummate worker. In the beginning, God... So from the beginning, God is not just kind of sitting you know, inside of himself in contemplative idleness or whatever, but what's the first thing that we see of God in the scriptures? What's he doing? He's creating. He's making something. Then, of course, the scripture says that on the seventh day he rested from his labors, but it seems like when we look at the scriptures, that God gets right back to work right after that. Think about what the psalmist says, Psalm 77. The psalmist says, I will consider all of your works and meditate on all of your mighty deeds. So is God idle? No. A lot of people do believe this about God, that our God is a God that kind of created the universe and wound up the clock and then he walked away and he's just kind of letting it 
go along, but that's not the perspective of Scripture. The perspective of Scripture is that our God is always at work ordering and preserving, sustaining, blessing, healing, lifting up his world, which is why Jesus says in John chapter 5 that my Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So God works, and then his Son comes alongside and enters into his work. And I think that that right there is a template for how we think about the work of our hands. That our Father is always at work in human society, ordering, governing, sustaining, healing, blessing. That what he calls us to do with the work of our hands is to step into that and participate in it. So we could say it like this, just to develop the point a little further here, that God is the very first worker and he calls us to work alongside him for the upbuilding and healing of his world, which is a long way of saying that our work is, it's ministry. It's an entry into what God is doing. But many of us don't think about the work of our hands in that way. And part of the problem is the way that we talk about things like ministry in the church. I'm born and raised in the church. I love being a church kid. And I have so many fond memories of growing up in the church, church services and all that stuff. One of the things that I do remember, this happened often when I was a kid growing up in church, is that we would have these you know, traveling ministers or whoever would come through and they'd lead some great service and the spirit is really moving in a profound way. And then they would get up at the end of the service and they would say, now this morning or tonight or whenever it was, you know, the spirit is moving upon us and I really believe that tonight, this night, God is calling some people into the, into the ministry. And that meant something, didn't it? To be called into the ministry is to be called to be a pastor or to be an evangelist or to be a missionary, right? Or to be a worship leader. And so then a few people would come up, 15 or 20 folks would come up and the minister would lay his or her hands on those people and anoint them with oil and just thereby 15 to 20 people were christened to be participants in the ministry, which meant the rest of us were not participators in the ministry. <laughs> Right, so everybody else is kind of sitting on the sidelines, kind of watching. And whether we knew it or not, subtly what was being communicated is that there's a certain group of people in the church that really do like the real stuff for the kingdom, right? Anybody basically that's on the platform or maybe that's in support ministry for what happens in the church or missions work or whatever. So anything that kind of happens up here, this is like the real stuff. This is what God is really interested in. And then the rest of humanity out there, all the rest of the people in the church, the laity. What's their job? Well, volunteer and give money to the church, duh. You know, and that's why you have a job. The job is so that you can give money to the church to support the stuff that, are you following with me? You ever heard this or felt this in the church before? That there's kind of a superior class and then there's sort of everybody else. And unfortunately, that idea that has deep roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Somehow it finds its way. I think it's an anti-biblical idea, but it finds its way into our thinking. This is from about the fourth or fifth century. A Jewish rabbi writing this prayer said, I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast given me my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. He's talking about merchants here. For I am early to work and they are early to work. But I am early to work on the words of the Torah, the Old Testament, and they are early to work on things of no moment. 
I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and profit thereby, and they weary themselves to no profit. I run and they run. I run towards the life of the age to come, and they run towards the pit of destruction. What? So this guy sitting in his little study, just pouring over the words of the Torah, which is a fabulous luxury, by the way, that he gets to do that, is now sort of casting judgment upon everybody else that doesn't do that and saying that these people who are doing the things that actually carry on the life of our society, merchants, doctors, lawyers, business people, that those people are running towards, what? Come on, man. Even in the Christian tradition, think about Eusebius of Caesarea, one of the greatest historians of the church has ever seen, said this, this is about the same time period, fourth, fifth century. He said that two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common human living, holy and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such that is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits men to join in pure nuptials, talking about marriage here, and to reduce children to undertake government, to give orders to soldiers fighting for right. It allows them to have minds for farming, for trade, and the other more secular interests, as well as for religion, and a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. What a jerk face. That's the theological term for it. Come on, man. Surely you have something better to say about what human beings do with their time when they're not at church than that. Eusebius didn't. And I think that to the extent that we say things like that, they're anti-biblical. They're not reflecting what's really going on in the scriptures. Think about this, this perspective. What I'm trying to lay out for you, it's everywhere in the scriptures. Think about what the psalmist says here, Psalm 104, starting in verse 14. The psalmist says that he makes grass, talking about God here. He makes grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Talking about how God raises up food from the ground and feeds people. And then watch what he says here. Here's the kinds of foods that God's create, God creates. He says, number one, wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. And we read that and we go, oh yes, thank you God that you have done these things. Thank you that you are a God that makes wine that gladdens human hearts. Now, I know some of you are uncomfortable with that, but it's in your Bible. <laughs> wine that gladdens human hearts and oil that makes their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. But here's the thing, that you've never been walking around in an orchard or a vineyard and seen bottles of wine hanging off the vine, have you? You haven't. And you've not been walking through a grove of olive trees or whatever and seen bottles of olive oil just sitting there, have you? And you've never been through walking through a field and just seen loaves of baked bread. How does the wine and the oil and the bread actually come to be? The humans, <laughs> the humans are doing these things. And God is seen as the ultimate agent through whom these things are being made. But it's the humans that are the proximate agents of it. They're the ones that are actually doing it. So that there would be no wine and there would be no oil and there would be no bread apart from the human beings that do it. And those things that God uses to sustain human life actually wouldn't exist at all unless the human beings had done something about it. Are you following with me this morning, ladies and gentlemen? Your work is sacred. And one of the moments in my own life where this came home to me in a profound way was when I was about 10 years or so ago, I was on a run 
with my dad. My parents live up in central Wisconsin. It was a gorgeous Wisconsin summer day. So my dad and I decided to run a couple miles together and we got out there. And my dad at that time was starting to near retirement. He had worked for about 35 years at that point for a car dealership in central Wisconsin. Started out as a salesman and just proved himself that really well, eventually became a sales manager, then worked his way up to general manager. And for a lot of years was really the guy who was like at the helm of this productive enterprise, this good work that was taking place in central Wisconsin. And I remember I just always had so much respect for my dad and for his career and all that. And so while I'm on the run and he's getting ready to retire in a few years, I'm starting to just kind of reflect upon like, uh, uh, tell me what the vantage point, you know? It's like from there, I'm kind of getting started in my career, you're sort of at the end of it. So tell me what you, how you feel about it. You know, what's going on in your heart, dad? And I remember as he spoke to me, one of the things that he said in the middle of that conversation is he said, you know, Andrew, sometimes I wonder if, uh, if I should have done something with my life that had a more direct impact for the kingdom of God. And I remember that comment just kind of hit me really hard. Something more direct for the kingdom of God. Like maybe I should have, maybe I would have made a bigger, bigger difference in the world if I'd been a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader. And maybe what I'm doing over here, what I've been spending the last 35 years on, maybe it doesn't matter all that much. And I just got to reflecting upon that. God, like what is the significance of my dad's life? And I started thinking about all that it meant that he did that work for those 35 years. I started thinking about how, you know, it can be a uniquely terrifying experience to walk onto a car dealership and you need a car and you've got this need at your family, you know, like we need good, reliable transportation and you're afraid of getting taken advantage of, right? And I started thinking about how my dad, with my dad at the helm of this thing, there are all these people, the city's about 18,000 people, thousands of people came through that dealership over the years and they did not have to fear that they were going to be taken advantage of. That's the ministry of the Lord to those people. Moreover, they were being put in cars that weren't like, they didn't, weren't being like upsold, you know? But it was like cars that like fit their family's needs. So it's not crashing their budget. So there again, the ministry of the Lord. But then I also thought about all the employees that my dad employed over the years and how he gave them an opportunity to grow in their skill and their ability and to earn a living wage for their family. And I thought about how we pray to the Lord, Lord provide for people, but he uses car dealerships up in Wisconsin to get that done. And then I started thinking about the economic enterprise that that whole thing represented and the big difference that that made in the region. It lifted a whole region because of how profitable it was. And I thought, well, that's the ministry of the spirit there. And then I thought about the way in which that job gave my dad like this opportunity to develop his talents and abilities to the full. And there again is the ministry of the spirit. And if all of that weren't the case, it also provided for my family made sure that we had food on the table and a roof over our heads. And I started thinking wave after wave after wave after wave, like 35 years of working at V&H Automotive up in central Wisconsin, whether he knew it or not, that was the ministry of the Spirit, that God was using it to lift an entire region and to bless and strengthen people's lives. So the psalmist says, you're the one, oh God, that you give food, you bring food from the earth, wine and oil and bread, but who is he using to do it? Who does he use to do it? Us, we do it. We're like the, we're the agents that God uses to bring his strength and his blessing to the world. And he does it through our work. But I think about all of the time we spent, how many parents do we have in the house this morning? You got parents, lift your hands real high. Okay, I think about all the time that we spend praying over our children 
We pray, God, take good care of them. God, watch over them. God, provide for them. God, help them discover who they are. Help them become all they're meant to be. Create a safe environment for them. We lift these prayers up to the Lord. But how does God answer those prayers? He answers it in part through all of the educators that he raises up. How many people do we have in the room this morning that you're in education? You're either a teacher or you're an administrator, you're a principal, you're anything. Lift your hand real high if you're in education in this house. Lift it up real high. Can you give a hand clap to these people this morning? We pray these prayers to the Lord, but he raises up these people to do it. I think about all the prayers that we pray for the people that we love in our lives. God, protect them and keep them safe. For folks that we know that are psychologically disturbed in some way, they're dealing with mental illness. So we pray, keep bodies safe and keep minds safe. Oh God, help them. How does God answer that prayer? He raises up doctors and nurses and people in healthcare, and he raises up counselors and therapists. If you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a healthcare administrator, if you're a therapist or a counselor, could you raise your hand real high this morning so we can see you? Real high, real high. Give it up for these people. We pray over our community. We pray over our nation. God, protect it. God, keep it safe. Father, keep chaos at bay. Keep violence at bay. Make sure that there's no sound of violence in our streets, no chaos in the city square. We pray those prayers. And who does God raise up to do that? He raises up people like Andrew Peary, who gave his life in the line of duty, protecting his community. He raises up police officers, and he raises up people in the armed forces, and he raises up folks in government to help run an orderly society. If you are, one more time, if you're a police officer, you work in law enforcement, or if you, work in, if, you've, uh, if you are in our armed services, either active duty or retired, or if you're in government in any capacity, could you lift your hands real high this morning? All over this room. All over this room. Welcome to the ministry, ladies and gentlemen. You've all been anointed. You've all been called. You've all been blessed. You've all been sent. And if we had enough time, we could get every single one of you in this room up here and we could talk about what the work of your hands is and we could talk about how that fits inside the plan of God to bring blessing into the world. It doesn't matter what station we occupy. We're all called into it on some level. This is what God is doing with his people. And the importance of this, I think, cannot be overstated because one of the, if the flip side, like if the truth is that God is the first worker and he calls us to work alongside him for the building up and blessing of his world to work his ministry, the flip side of that is also true. That you can put the next slide up on the screen, that bad work distorts God's good world and is a principal sign of the fall. I'd say that most of the misery of our lives is because work that was designed to be a blessing in the world is actually perverted. It's turned towards selfish and destructive ends. Think about what happens. Now we're talking about the fall here. Think about what happens in Genesis chapter three when the first human beings turn away from God and they decide to arrest their own lives and take them away. What happens when the curse begins to fall? The Lord says that there will be enmity between you and the woman. So there's a breakdown in relationship. All of a sudden, selfishness accrues. There is this exaltation of the self that takes place. And the ground all of a sudden starts not working the way that it's supposed to work. There's like this whole breakdown of relationship. And what you see when you see the biblical record unfold is you see this warping, this perversion of our work. Think about the Tower of Babel. 
all those humans getting together and they're making a name for themselves rather than spreading out and doing what God told them to do. They're making a name for themselves and God rebukes that and he curses that because he knows that oppression will result. Or think about the book of Exodus, that what the children of Israel find themselves in, in Egypt, is they find themselves in a situation where Pharaoh in Egypt, who had been given gifts and resources to bless and strengthen that region, all of a sudden were turning them to selfish and destructive ends. And so when the prophets come along in the scriptures, they're not just, like when you read the prophetic books of scriptures, the prophets are not just saying to the people, hey, you know, you haven't been properly religious lately, and you need to straighten up kind of your worshiping life and all that stuff. They certainly do say that. They're calling idolatry out and they're trying to mend those things. But when you read through the prophets, guys like Hosea and Amos, Ezekiel, you know, as often as not, they're rebuking business leaders for the corrupt practices because they know that somehow that's like, that's one of the ways that the world gets warped. I think about years ago, Mandy and I were living in Denver. Uh, we were driving around back in 2008. We bought a brand new, this is our first new vehicle that we ever owned, brand new 2008 Dodge Grand Caravan. Loved that van. We had three little kids at the time, so it was perfect for us. And I loved like driving around a new car. You know why? Because I don't have to worry about it breaking down. Thanks be to God for that. So we had driven it like 10,000 miles, 15,000 miles, 20,000 miles, you know, and it's still in great condition. We'd every once in a while, we'd take it to this one particular car dealership to get it serviced. And uh, I would take it in, you know, and they'd look it over and they'd change the oil and they'd do all the little checks and they'd come back and I'd say, how's everything look, guys? And they'd hand me the keys back and they'd go, everything looks great, Mr. Arndt. And I'd hit the road and drive away. And then Mandy would take the caravan in. And they'd look it over and change the oil and do all this stuff and they'd go, Mrs. Arndt, you got all this stuff wrong with it here and we're recommending about $8,000 of repair to get this grand caravan back in shape. And she'd come back to me and she'd go, honey, the van is falling apart. It's not falling apart. I've been driving it. It doesn't make any weird sounds. And just three months ago, they gave me a, like a clean bill of health on this thing. So I'd take it back, you know, a couple months later and they'd check it over and they'd go, here you go, Mr. Arndt. Everything looks great. What? That's the stuff that we're dealing with, guys. It's good that we have people like my dad who worked all those years in cars, putting people in safe cars and all that stuff. It's bad that we have people working in the same industry that are trying to take advantage of others, amen? It's good that we have educators that are working to build up and bless and strengthen our children. It is bad that we have educators that have either mailed it in or they're teaching things in classrooms that they ought not to be teaching. Yeah, we got a loud amen on that one. It's good that we have people that are working in healthcare, taking care of bodies and taking care of minds and making sure that our constitution is right and that we can be taken care of when all of a sudden our bodies start falling apart. It is bad that we have a system that is constantly being gamed by people that are profiting by keeping other human beings sick and on medication their entire lives. Yeah, I need some amens from that too. You can't get good healthcare if you're poor, you know? It's bad, it's a sign of the fall. It's good that we have people that work in government. Thanks be to God for government. Can I get an amen from somebody? 
know it's a time when there's a lot of cynicism about government these days, but thanks be to God. Paul says that it's sent by God to help order and preserve society. It's a bad thing that we have people working in government who are corrupt and selfish and liars and taking advantage of the system, using it to make a name for themselves and not looking out for those that they're supposed to be looking out for. Amen and amen to all of that. So what's God's solution to that? You. You're God's solution to that. See guys, God sends his people into every sector of society to bear witness to the kingdom. You aren't just there trying to make a buck for yourself. And you're not just working to try to do something good with your time and hopefully you can earn enough money to keep the real work of the ministry happening here. God sends his people into every sector of society to bear witness to the kingdom, friends. Our work is a sign that God reigns. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? Our work is a sign that God reigns. In fact, in the early church, when you start reading the annals of early church history, one of the ways that people commonly came into the church, they came into a saving relationship with Jesus, was because of the business practices of Christians in the marketplace. Do you know this? Justin Martyr talks about this. People would be out there in the marketplace conducting themselves in a way that radiated the holiness of God. And people would be out there going, you're not trying to game the system and you're not trying to take advantage of me. And it seems like you actually are in it as much for my benefit as for yours. Tell me about the God that you worship. And all of a sudden right there, the Christians are bearing witness to the living Lord Jesus, who's forming a body for himself to mend the things that have been warped by human sin. Are you with me this morning? Our work is a sign that God reigns. Your work has value. Your work has dignity. Your work is part of the ministry of the spirit in the world. And you need to reclaim it as that, as something that has sacred value. So to conclude, I wanna give you three things real quick, couple minutes left here. I wanna give you three things real quick on just thinking through like pointers, like what does it mean for us to work as unto the Lord? Three things real quick. Number one, working as unto the Lord. I think as believers in Jesus, I think that we're called to find something that we are suited to do and then do it with joy as long as we can. Do you understand that how God has made you is not accidental? The stuff that he's put in you, the talents he's given you, the abilities he's given you, the dreams, the capacity for innovation that he's given, all of that, all of that is his gift to you for the blessing and the upbuilding of this world. So find something you're suited to do and do it with joy as long as you possibly can. And that will be a witness to the world of what your God is like. Frederick Buechner, one of the great writers of the 20th century said that the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What is the thing that you do that when you do it, you feel the most you? That place where it intersects the hunger of the world, it's a place that God intends to release life and blessing into the world. And there's a word in here, also I think for parents, I think we're all called to this, but sometimes I think Parents, one of the things that we say to our kids that I think gets our, gets our kids all messed up is we say to our kids, you know, you need to do something that'll make you a lot of money when you grow up. You better be able to pay the bills. And we thwart the good things that are in our kids. Don't say that to your kids. Call out the best things in them. 
call out what God has given them, and then set them loose in their lives to contribute out of that for the good of the world. Can I get an amen from somebody? Find that thing that you can do with gladness and do it as long as you can. Number two, learn to do what you do with excellence and skill. Sometimes I think the way that we think about like what it means to behave Christianly at our work is we go, well, you know, I pray a lot when I'm at my job. And I also take every opportunity to try to witness to my coworkers. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for prayer. And I'm all for witnessing. But do you know that how you do your work says as much about who you worship as any measure of prayer or witnessing you can do? In fact, I'd say to you that if you're at your job all the time and praying and witnessing and all that, but you're doing a crummy job at your job, you're slandering the name of the Lord Jesus. Think about this, Dorothy Sayers says this. She says that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. But what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church by all means and decent forms of amusement certainly, but what use is all of that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth, nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to, its own, to itself, for any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. Do not blaspheme God with shabby work. Paul says that whatever you do, do it how? Say it loud, church. Do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Do it the best that you possibly can and let them, because of the quality of your work, say, tell me about the God that you serve. Number three. Learn to do all that you do for God's glory and other people's good. Christians do not work to make a name for themselves. And they don't work to make a buck. But we are those who have been baptized. And do you know what that means? That we have given up our lives to Jesus. Paul says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We exist now to be expressions of Jesus Christ on the earth. And so we do, as he did, we do all that we do for the glory of God and the good of other people. And Jesus said this, that the person who tries to save his life will lose it. But the person who loses their life inside all of the things that I've called them to do, that person will gain it. You will actually be the most happy you can possibly be inside your work. If you decide to give yourself over to the glory of God and the good of others in it, you'll find that you found the kingdom in it. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? Can you stand to your feet? And I want you to do this this morning. I want you to think about what the work of your hands is. I want you to think about what God has called you to do, where God has stationed you, where God has appointed you. I want you to think about what's in your hands. And it's not just your job, but it's also your resources, your abilities. One of the words that I sometimes use for this that I think is a helpful word is agency. What agency has God given you to make a difference in the world? Some of you are here this morning and you're retired. So you're going, Andrew, my working years are behind me. Fine. But God's given you relationships and he's given you a domain 
to watch over and to steward and he's given you resources, you still have work to complete until you have no more breath in your lungs. What is the work of your hands, friends? And I want you to take it like this and I just want you to hold it up before the Lord, whatever it is. So we say, here it is, God. All that we are and all that we have. We say, here we are, oh God. And now we say, fill us, Holy Spirit. We say, fill us, Holy Spirit. Fill us with strength. Fill us with power. Fill us with might. I'm praying that you would help us do our work well this morning, Holy Spirit. But I'm praying that you would give us a new imagination for the work of our hands, for how it counts, how it matters in God's good world. I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you would break the spirit in us of selfishness, self-aggrandizing thoughts, building ourselves up, making a name for ourselves. Would you strip that out of us this morning? We are the people of God. So take that out of us. But I'm praying that you'd help us remember that we belong to Jesus Christ, that our lives have been given up to him. And so I pray for every occupation in this room that's represented here. I'm praying, Lord, that there would be an outbreak of your spirit in our workplaces, an outbreak of your spirit in all the places of our employment, all of the places where we put our hands to work. And we say, let your kingdom come because of it. And let your will be done in Colorado Springs and beyond, just like it's done in heaven. Granted, we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, let's sing the song of worship in response and then Pastor Natalie is gonna lead us to the table.
table this morning, perhaps this is a rededication to consecrate our work as if unto the Lord. Just say, thank you, Jesus, for trusting me with your people. Thank you, Jesus, for trusting me with this gift. And as we come to the table, we ask him to fan that flame, to stir up that gift that he has given us deep inside and to offer it as a living sacrifice unto him. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed when he was handed over to suffer and die, that he took the bread and after giving it to the disciples, he said, this is my body that has been broken for you in forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat and do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together this morning. And it was on that same night that he took the cup and he said to the disciples, this is my blood that has been poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, drink and do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the cups together. for you. We begin section community parties again next week. If you are not connected into one, they are simply where you sit and we will begin to announce those next week. Also women, we have a mom's conference coming up this Tuesday night, several Bible studies and small groups starting. We have a table out in the lobby. We would love to connect with you there as well as Guest Central to get to know anyone who might be new or looking to get connected into this place. Our prayer team is here to pray with you and for you. Please open your hands for a blessing this morning as we go out. New Life Church, may you know that the work that the Lord has put at your hands is good and holy work. Go and do it with your whole heart and as unto the Lord. You are changing this city. Holy Spirit, you are changing this city 
for the sake of your city. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Go and be blessed. We'll see you next week.